We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 41. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about collecting oral histories in Indian country. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nooch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have two guests on the podcast. Uh, the first one you may remember, Aaron Brin from episodes 22 and 25 from Salish Kootenai College. If you don't, you should definitely go back and check out those two episodes. And the second guest today is Dr. Sean Dean Pete. Sean Dean was raised on the Flathead Indian Reservation in Arlie, Montana. He completed an MS in geology and a doctorate of education in curriculum and instruction at the University of Montana. He has been a faculty member at Salish Kootenai College since 2008, where he has co-developed the hydrology department. He currently serves as the director of the Indigenous Research Center at SKC while seeking to advance understandings of indigenous research methodologies from Salish philosophical commitments. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I guess I also... <laughs> I didn't give Aaron the opportunity to <laughs> say hi. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Aaron, say hi. No, hey, he's been on. Hey, how's, he's been on twice. He don't need it. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Hey, this is Aaron uh, coming to you from Montana. Well, thank you, Aaron. Sean, do you now so that, so they can hear the difference between you two? Do you want to say hi? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for having me on the show, and uh, great to meet you virtually here. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, looking forward to having you. So on that note, since you are the new person, you get to start us out with how did you get into this field? Get into as an in interested in. Okay, yeah, that's probably a longer story than we have here. But uh, I guess in particular, any anybody, you know, anybody growing up on the res, any, uh, any uh, young person growing up... Uh, in the heart of the reservation here and in anywhere is always um, we're always on a quest for, for knowledge, whether we know it or not. And we use um, academics, I guess, and the degrees we get from academics as a kind of a catapult for that. Even if those degrees don't exactly align with something you would uh, traditionally call ethnography or archaeology or what have you. I think we all um, are thirsting for knowledge of uh, the teachings of our ancestors. So I think it's always been on my mind, even though uh, I worked as a hydrologist, as a land surveyor, as a science educator, really finding out and digging more into the past has been uh, really one of the foundational uh, disciplines that uh, keeps me going. Yeah. So, okay. What brought you guys to this partnership and, and what are you guys doing? Uh, well, I, I met Aaron many years ago through, uh, through his sister. Uh, his sister and I were roommates in college and um, I believe he came and stayed with his sister a few times. And that's when I got to know Aaron 
when he was just a young lad prior to his uh, emergence into manhood. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> a, whip, a whippersnapper. Yeah. Yeah. So really at that time, you know, I, he was, he was just a kid who would walk around the house singing reggae and talking about skating and, that, yeah, that's all I really know of him. But, you know, as I seen him grow up through life, you know, you could tell he, he embodied a, a certain attribute of his tribal people that was pretty important. And I think we share that uh, quality in particular with uh, with ceremonialism and, and, and the songs are were our one strand that uh, kind of tied us together. Well, geez, thank you, Sean Dean. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> So, so post <laughs> post reggae singing, when did you guys come back together, or when did you guys see each other again? Uh, we live in the same town, so you know we kind of see each other now, now and again. Or prior to us working together at SKC, I would always see them, say hi. Always stayed friends with Sean Dean, singing together, and yeah, we always kind of shared interests. And whenever I'd I'd see him, I'd I'd bring up like ideas that we should kind of talk about or do some research on. But when I started working at SKC is when he approached me about uh, maybe contributing to this uh, grant proposal for the Indigenous Research Center. So I threw in my little two cents for that, but uh, he's really the one who authored it. So yeah, a couple of years ago is when our our, uh, tag team kicked off. Yeah, sounds about right. So, okay, since you authored it, do you want to explain what it is, Sean Dean? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give you an abridged version. So the Indigenous Research Center was uh, really the idea of a number of faculty at SKC that formed a faculty research group. Uh, I think it was around maybe 2014, maybe even sooner than that. Uh, but there was a lot of folks interested in pursuing and understanding further what literature, what the literature meant at that time concerning indigenous research methodologies. And um, we wanted to explore that. And there was a, I guess, a nice rounded uh, sample of folks vying for different opinions about what it was and what it wasn't. You know, when you're raised on the, on the, on the res here, you have a you have a, a deep understanding and it's really a very subconscious understanding of your own worldview. And whenever you see academic literature citing your own worldview, you have to kind of question whether it's accurate or not. So kind of my my opinion about indigenous research and in particular methodological approaches to research from an indigenous worldview seemed like the literature was a, was a scant or it wasn't fulfilling what I thought was uh, accurate characterization of that. So um, this research group um, uh, started to explore those ideas. And and then a couple of the uh, researchers in that group submitted a proposal to do a self-study to develop a good understanding of how well Salish Kootenai College could support a center that um, had the mission of examining closer what this indigenous research methodological approach could be for our local communities here. Um, After that self-study, 
was completed. A few years later, those two researchers had left Salish Kootenai College. And um, pretty much I was the one of few from that original research group that was still around. And then a funding opportunity came through from the National Science Foundation to write a proposal to um, develop a research center. So things kind of aligned. Um, I solicited some input from uh, the folks who were in that research group and also some of the newer faculty that came on, such as Aaron, and um, just forged ahead and, and put together a plan on uh, on how to examine this this approach that we think works for our communities and um, also works within an academic uh, environment, I suppose. So that's that's just kind of the basics of how that started and how um, I'm I was pretty lucky to rope Aaron in on this um, this very important project. So, I mean, I guess first, Aaron, do you have anything that you want to add to that? No, that's a pretty uh, concise summary of of our goal. I guess. Um, I, well, maybe if I do, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, the idea that Shandine said that some of the literature out there about indigenous methodologies just never seemed to satisfy myself either. So when we, we would sit and visit about this topic, it seemed like we were on the same page in terms of at least knowing that it could get better. And I, I think it's not a criticism of any individual, but more of, more of just wanting more out of the discipline of indigenous research, you know? So, and so I was all on board for, for jumping in on the research center and doing what I can because it sounded like a lot of fun. The proposal from the, the National Science Foundation is, is a five-year grant. And uh, uh, we applied and received $3.5 to see this center through Ooh. for the next five years. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Big deal. Yeah, that is legit. Okay, so wait, before, before we... Um, go too far with this. I'm just curious. I mean, naturally you hit my little, uh, ethnographer antennas. I don't know what you'd call it. Um, with this, uh, (laughs) self-study thing. So I'm curious, what were some of the big conclusions in that? I mean, I know you, you mentioned that it was, um, two other individuals that actually wrote it and how has that like matched up with what, you guys ended up going with i don't know just kind of curious about what came out of that i guess yeah you know we we took a lot of the recommendations from that self study which was interview with tribal college administrators at skc and some of the uh, closer tribal colleges and also interviews with the local culture committees um interviews with students and a lot of the recommendations were were very broad but it was more so to generate data that that said, yes, people want this and people want to know more about indigenous research methodologies. They want to be able to employ them in in, in the tribal college environment. Yeah, I mean, I, without looking up the exact details of what was said in there, that was kind of the basics of that self-study. So, I mean, I guess the the natural question off of that was... You know, you're mentioning using indigenous research methodologies in a tribal college setting. So what what does that look like? What is that that you guys are, are now doing? Yeah, Shandine, what 
what is that? What does that look like, Shandine? <laughs> that's well. That's a. I think that's a, a valid question, and it's something that we're we're heavily researching uh, because I, you know, we get stuck in this uh, this mind frame of what we want to do and what we think is ideal, but we quickly understand that we're we're fenced off in a certain way by the industry of academics even and even in a tribal college setting we have we have um, some restrictions that don't allow us to actually employ what we really feel is that a true pathway to generating or producing new knowledge in a in a true indigenous way but even 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 so i don't know if we exactly have a a good framework for how that would look yet because like I was uh, talking in a in a previous uh, interview is, you know, we, we have this behavior where we look into the past to find exemplars of behaviors or values or anything that would guide us on how to behave today. But the reality of it is that the the past is, is a far different environment, far different situation than it is today. So I often have to reel myself back in and say, okay, that those are the ideals, but the reality is we can't really operate the same way today. So uh, one of the things I often try to reflect back on is, is how, my, how are we trying to frame this methodological approach? Are we examining it in the right time frame? And are we, are we, are we kind of shielding ourselves from what the actual reality is of, of today? So yeah, there's no great answer on how that's going to look yet. <laughs> but I, I think um, the tribal college setting is is a is a great battleground to do that, and we we have our own battles that we have to fight with our own administration and and our, their own structure. But it's something I think we can achieve. Yeah, and I I think it's important to say like we sit in a pretty privileged uh, position in the fact that we're Indian people working with Indian people in Indian country, like it, it, so we're not from the outside looking in, we're getting to do the work of, of trying to figure out what indigenous research methodologies look like with the greatest resource available, which is Indian people. So in that sense, I don't know if to that extent it's ever been done. I'm not sure, but hopefully we get something that people can use out of it. That's the plan is to take these methodologies out of the philosophical realm and into the practical realm and usable realm and, and, and turn it from more of, like I said, a philosophy into something people can use. Yeah. Okay. And with that, we are already at our first break point. Can you believe that? <laughs> so we will be back here in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. All right, we are back. So we just we were just having a great conversation on the break. I wish you all could have been there for all of our shenanigans, but wanting to move from what they were just talking about on air, which was methodology, into actually talking about some methodology. So we're going to be talking about collecting oral histories. So let's dive in. I mean, do you, are you guys doing any specific projects related to collecting oral histories? Are you more just like thinking on how to best do that from more of a methodological sense? Uh, where are you guys at with that? I don't know, Sean you're you got a few things going right now, don't you? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I always got something yeah, go going on. Down. Talk about it. <laughs> well, that's, that's uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's well, uh, well, when when Jessica asked that, I was thinking like, well, I always kind of have something going, whether it's paid or unpaid, is is right. uh, really the question. But uh, yeah, I'm constantly collecting oral histories, and uh, at the moment, I'm working on a nomination for. Uh, a TCP nominate or for the register. And, and then I'm also, what else are, uh, well, me and me and you, Sean Dean are going to work on a publication, but also we're doing some stuff on the grass dance ceremony, hopefully down the road. Right. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. What do you want to talk about Jessica? <laughs> well, okay. So you're working on a, a TCP nomination, you said? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, we obviously don't have to get into the the specifics of that, but it's just interesting because TCP nominations are obviously insanely rare, by far the the least officially nominated or formally nominated type of historic yeah. property, and for obvious reasons, which is confidentiality. Well, we're in the early stages of it right now. We're just collecting stories and, and any, any oral histories related to the landscape. It's um, I, I always, uh, I try to try to think of what I do in collecting oral histories as more as understanding landscape, right. Through the, through the power of observation, which is tribal people, right. Tribal people have been observing landscape for a long time. So traditionally in archeology, span it always seems as though um, are in any, any kind of natural resource field where they're where they're going to implement some sort of oral history it's always it's more like in a supplemental setting where it's kind of like up in the appendix of the document it's kind of like after the project's done let's kind of get some anecdotal evidence or some cool stories that we can throw in or in 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 education you see it more with like curriculum development kind of the you you learn by our wildlife biology and then then they'll say oh we're going to have our unit on, on tribal knowledge where I've always tried to come from it where it's like, no, we'll do that first. The collection and the interpretation of oral histories happens first. 
and in how I use it in archaeology, you can kind of think of it as like a form of predictive modeling, maybe even. I've kind of thought about that in my head a little bit about not only understanding landscape, but uh, kind of showing me where things might be or or um, how how to interpret certain archaeological sites if that's the need. But and, and honestly, I'm just a fan of it too. So I'm a fan of Indian culture. So it's never been much of a chore in collecting these stories for these projects. So yeah. And, you know, one thing you were saying there about how it's, it's really about telling the, the story of a landscape. I feel like that is more how I describe my job too, um, that I talk about people's connection to place basically. But the, the hard thing being, <laughs> you know, one thing that you already talked about, you know, I'm not indigenous, I'm Jewish. So I'm coming from that like outside perspective. And then I'm also coming from the outside perspective in the sense of I'm also not a, you know, natural resource specialist. Like, you know, it, when you're talking to indigenous elders, you know, they're not just talking about the archaeology. They're talking about the geology and the plant life and the geography and, um, you know, the land, the mm-hmm. physical landmarks around and the hydrology like and, that, and that's Dean. like with, Sh- with yeah with Sean Dean's work like he actually is the one I've kind of used him as an example of a, a lot about how he uses oral histories in his field because it's it's not a traditional thing to for people to throw ethnography or the collection of oral histories in in the hard sciences or the, at least the geosciences so uh, if he can do it then I think people who study humanity we should be able to do it pretty easy so yeah John Dean <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, you know, you, you know, um, I, I always fall back on this as a crutch, saying, "Well, you know, I'm not a trained uh, uh, historic preservationist or a trained uh, anthropologist or or anything like that." So, you know, the the discipline has its has its own the, the own language of its own and its own definitions, and sometimes I can. Uh, be ignorant of some of those things, but I think the approach is all, is all familiar and the, the spirit of it is, is all familiar to me. But, you know, in particular, my, my general approach to bringing together, uh, you know, cultural components into uh, a discipline like geology or hydrology, the, the goal really is to connect the students that um, I teach to a piece of knowledge about their own people that maybe they ha- don't have access to or maybe that has been forgotten. So um, it also serves a double purpose to really inform myself of knowledge that has been lost. So um, it's it's kind of a natural um, approach that I have taken. But largely what, what I'm finding more uh, recently is that the, the older folks of today are um, – they're, they don't know as much as, you know, of course, the generation beyond them. So a lot of what I end up having to do is rely on um, archival data to kind of match up the bits and pieces that uh, the older folks know today. And that requires a, a quite a, a quite a bit of filtering of data to make sure that you're getting an accurate uh, representation of a piece of knowledge that you might want to use or that you might um theorize that connects to some hydrological or geological phenomenon. So that's, that's kind of my approach. And, um, 
that's uh, in a nutshell, that's that's really what is the driving force behind behind what I do. But uh, Sean Dean, wouldn't wouldn't you think though, in order to understand that like, archival information, that you would first have to have a fairly strong understanding of culture yourself, and in, in in being that you are a practitioner of like Salish beliefs and ceremonial life. Do you think that has an, has had an effect on how you're interpreting like the archival data that you're collecting and even and even deciphering knowledge that elders even have today that are non-practitioners does that play a part in how you're collecting information? Oh yeah, it it it's 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 vital. It's vital. Um it, it's just like a you know an an emerging tradesman, you know, if they if they don't have the experience, the the life experience of, you know, carpentry, you know, there's there's certain things that you you know, you have to kind of fumble your way through and um when we're talking about disseminating information as fact as as truth we want to be really cautious and um, we need to make sure that we're honest with ourselves and that we know and understand what we're reading as being true before we you know pronounce it as such when we are um, you know merging disciplines like that and, and even examining a story it's it yeah you, you have to be seeped in the in the tradition of today you know what we have left to really understand the experience of uh, the things that were written down. Yeah. So this is kind of making me think about some recent experiences in terms of how on the one hand, I mean, obviously like growing up in an indigenous setting, like there are certain connections that you can make with other indigenous communities that I am not going to understand on the same level. And then also having, you know, conversations about bringing in ethnographers from other tribal communities and basically getting the response that in (laughs) certain situations, basically it would be better to be white than to be from the wrong tribe. (laughs) So, you know, you know what I'm saying though? I think you're talking about white privilege. Both. I mean, I think, (laughs) (laughs) I think, I mean, white privilege plays into everything, but so, okay. On the one hand, yes, there's like a white, a white privilege element. And then there's also like, you know, like there's certain tribes that are like rivals basically. Um, Or, uh, you know, like in the case that I'm thinking of, they call themselves like uh, traditional enemies. And give give me, give me an example. (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to single anybody out. Um, <laughs> in the Southwest, there's kind of like a, a, a lot of um, the surrounding tribes don't necessarily love to work with Diné or, or Navajo people, was what I was not going to say. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Look at Justin's starting problem. I'm sorry, Sean Dean. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I would say, I would say again, though, because uh, we run into that problem here in Montana, right? Like we'll, we'll hear stuff. People will say, well, how is it? It, it say, uh, say I'm a Crow Indian, right? So if I was going to work with the Blackfeet mm-hmm. tribe and they would say, Aaron, go, go up there. And they'll say, well, maybe it's better if we send a non-Indian person. That may be true. That, that, that mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to say that that doesn't happen, that there's not uh, certain privileges. But it, again, it also has to do with tribal people understanding their own oral histories and really understanding that there is really no 
animosity between the Blackfeet and the Crows or the Lakota and the Crows and that it really came from a system of collecting war deeds and whatever problems that uh, have happened during the reservation era should stay and be isolated within that reservation era and not be flooded into our into our own histories because it's it's really just a misunderstanding. I I I I get what you're saying because I've run into it and I know that there are certain times. But again, that that same argument could be made between male and female too. So I've also yeah. I've had situations where like you, absolutely. You know, in, in fact, I would actually say that probably happened. It's more common than than uh, Indian versus non-Indian that male and female play a bigger mm-hmm. role in how people respond to you in collecting stories. So, yeah, 100%. And I would say too, like not even just race and gender, but also age in the sense of, I think part of like, I've seen people respond better to me, I think because I am a young woman. And so that comes across as like not threatening in the same way that like an older white male might come across as more, threatening or you know what I mean like intimidating or something I think it it seems like that's kind of impacted my experience I don't know what do you think Sean Dean about all of this yeah you know I, I think I agree you know you see um you see a lot of that uh, misogyny from really the reservation era uh still alive and well so um but you know it works. It works oddly in, in in another direction as well, where you might have a, like you said, a young female researcher who's going to get more information out of a out of an older male gentleman just because of the dynamics of male female uh, <laughs> interactions, <laughs> to put it yeah. that way. Uh, and but you know when I when I think more about I think more about intent. You know I I think everybody has a sense of what a person's intention is, whether they're male, female, from a neighboring tribe or from, from even from their own tribe. I, I think people with knowledge that is, that is useful and true and um, they themselves are practitioners of that knowledge or, or you know, have a, have a sense of responsibility over some information. I think the, the judgment of intent from a person is, is um, probably one of the biggest factors and, in uh, the person collecting the data, I think their patience is also another factor. Um, you know, I've been, mm, I know a couple mm-hmm. of instances where I've been trying to gather data from a particular individual and I know and understand the approach and it's, and it's almost, uh, it's almost like a five year long approach you have to take to, um, get to that particular part of the story or that particular piece of data that you need because you know they're watching your actions not specifically but you know they, they're they're judging you and and the life that you're trying to lead and know that when they give you that information you're going to use it responsibly and you're going to take care of that knowledge or you're going to perpetuate it in the way that it is intended so I think intent really is the biggest factor no matter what what you look like or how old you are yeah yeah um i would even i would even say that knowing you got to know your audience to some degree like i know that i have run into problems not problems i wouldn't say that we're we're asking a lot of these people who hold knowledge right and so uh what what i think the job the job of somebody collecting oral histories has to be 
not just thorough, but they got to know what they're talking about. The example that I always give is um, if I go up to a crow elder or a Salish one for that matter is, and I say, tell me, what does it mean to be Salish? That's a labor intensive question, right? And you're going to get virtually the same response mm -hmm. from both people. But if I go in and I, and I understand the culture enough to ask specifically like a micro question, focus on the micro and not the macro, the response is actually greater. And in my experience, the more I do my research and get to understand the, the topic that I'm trying to research, those questions yield more. So uh, I think young ethnographers are young collectors of stories. That's where I see the biggest pitfalls are is they, they, they want to start with a huge general question and narrow it down where, where I would actually say, no, don't do that for one. That's a lot. It, you know, it's a, that's a three hour conversation. And some of these people are older, they're not in the best health and, and maybe by you knowing your what you're the topic you're trying to research, you can actually speed up the process and it becomes more enjoyable for them because you're talking about things that are specific and, and they're, they're topics that are more narrow and they're fun for them to talk about. And I'm, cause everybody's asking those same 10 questions about tell me what your grandma told you kind of questions. And, and it's labor intensive for some of these people. And I've run into it on several different reservations and in Indian communities. So, yeah. We're already at a second break. <laughs> I feel like the conversation's like really, really getting going. But we will be right back and jump right back in. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. We are back with our final segment talking about oral histories. So... Okay, we were just talking about knowing your audience. Do you have any other advice, I guess, thinking in the framework of indigenous methodologies about how people can collect oral histories in a in a better way, I guess? Yeah, you know, like like I was mentioning earlier, you know, the the concept of time is a is a pretty big factor in collecting uh, data in tribal communities. Uh, there's a tendency to, you know, work in a, in a small time space that's generally driven by funding sources. You know, the, the approach of a lot of native folks can vary on a time scale. You know, sometimes we, we are not living in the same uh, dimension of time uh, figuratively, not, 
not in reality, but <laughs> we don't have time machines. But, um, you know, just the idea of patience <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the idea of having patience and knowing that you might not get the data you want right off the bat. It's going to take, uh, like Aaron was saying, you have to develop your own mastery of of what you want and in a way really proving your worth that that information is um, uh, that you're deemed responsible for that information. So understanding the time frame of uh, when you want to collect this data. So I, and I don't, I, I don't know any other experience outside of my own on how that works, but I can, I couldn't imagine just, uh, you know, driving down to Crow Reservation and, and whipping out a tape recorder and saying, you know, question X, Y, and Z <laughs> and expecting to get, to get the data I want. It, it would be, a, a, the expectation I would have on myself would be a, a far longer process. So it's, it's really about developing a, a rapport or a relationship with the, the person that you're uh, you're intending to get some information from so that they really get a sense of what you want to do with that data and th- they get a good understanding of you and, and what your intent is so time the time frame has to be um, adjusted in, in your own schedule of events uh, on collecting that mm-hmm. data yeah like like i i would say like if you're going to work Especially if you're going to work in Crow, even here to some degree, are are on the Flathead Res or, are like um, Blackfeet Res is be be willing to work late. Like um, I know that a lot of times, like ethnographers want to get up bright and early, they want to get out there, <laughs> but it seems like reservation life for a lot of people doesn't start until like eight o'clock at night, you know? And and so I uh, some of my best conversations, I guess you can call them interviews have happened like 10, 30, 11 o'clock drinking coffee at night with people in their dining rooms, you know? And if I hadn't, if I didn't drink coffee, it would drastically change the way I do my job because I know on these three reservations here, it's like, if you don't drink coffee, man, I, people look at you like a leper. So um, you want to go into their <laughs> house, you want to visit, you want to visit, they're going to pour you a cup of coffee and, you're going to sit there and then they're going to refill your cup of coffee and then they're going to refill it again. But I, I noticed that when I didn't do stuff like simple things, like say, yeah, I'll have some coffee. Like if I didn't say that, it seems like the interview goes weird because they're already kind of like, oh, this guy doesn't want to sit down and visit. Cause in Indian country, yeah. sitting down and visiting means you want to sit down and drink coffee or you're not going to mind cigarette smoke are you're not going right. to uh, mm-hmm. mind. It's kind of like a, uh, I don't know what you would call it. Kind of like a test. Maybe. I don't know. It's not, it's definitely not a formalized test, but I know that it's, it's almost a turnoff for a lot of people. If someone comes and say, I want to talk to you about cultural stuff. And they say, well, sit down, I'll pour you some coffee. You're like, Oh no, I, I'm fine. I don't drink coffee. And it's like immediately tells the, tells that person is like, Oh, this guy don't want to visit. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I've run it. I've run into that personally. I know that I have. They don't talk about that in school when you're taking like a field ethnography class, or like, are you reading old ethnographers? They don't talk about stuff like that. And and I feel like collecting stories is like is is like um, creating rhythm with the person. Uh, you can, if you can get them talking in a rhythm in a cadence man, the information comes, but if you destroy that or if you compromise that cadence, man, it just seems like it's hard to get it back, you know? You know, it's like a mannerism that's been, you know, it's it's a holdover from, from, a, from a time that's been 
you know, gone for an, a number of years, but, you know, a lot of those mannerisms still exist. And it, it just reminds me of the, of the story that this one priest wrote in his journal about this interaction between these two people. They were, they were enemies in the same tribe, you know, and, and, uh, the, the guy had it in his mind that he's gonna, he's gonna kill this, kill his enemy, which is a, a guy from his own tribe. So he invites him over to his teepee, you know? And so, um, he sits down, even though they're enemies, he was courteous enough to, to, to go to his camp because that was just the mannerism. And the guy starts feeding him. So the guy eats cause that's his mannerism. He's has to do that. And so the guy keeps feeding him more and more and more. And finally the guy realizes, Oh, he's trying to kill me by feeding me to death. And the guy wouldn't <laughs> think of stop eating because it'd be rude. It would be rude to stop eating. And that just wasn't, that was just wasn't, didn't even cross the person's mind. So he understood that, okay, he's going to feed me to death. So he kept taking off pieces of his clothing to give to the guy to make him stop feeding him until finally the guy was satisfied and their, whatever beef they had was, was, you know, was gone at that time. So it reminds me of that. And you see a lot of these older people, you know, they'll, they'll kind of scoff at you if you refuse a piece of food or, you know, like Aaron said, if you hacking around because they're smoking or even, you know, smallest thing is, you know, just a, a refusing a cup of water. So it's really important that you develop that sense of a mannerism. It's kind of like, it, you, you don't want to look like a rookie. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, and I'm not doing a very good job of this on this podcast. I keep accidentally cutting you guys off, but I, the other part of it, like you're saying, you're talking about timing is, is timing within the interview in the sense of, at least down here, if an elder is talking, you're expected to sit there and listen. Long pauses become your best friend, I guess is what I'm saying. Like you have to learn how to become comfortable sitting in silence. But again, I think I, I, I think that can come down to what types of questions you're asking too. You know, I, I, I think if you ask a question that's so culturally specific, it usually yields a, a direct response, a very quick response too. And I actually have found in, in the work I've done is like people kind of light up. They kind of get excited when you ask a certain type of question, you know, and especially when it comes to like ceremonial life, which is usually uh, what they're trying to get to anyway, when they're talking about landscapes or like understanding of, of the natural phenomenons out there, it's usually uh, interpreted through ceremonial life, especially with practitioners. They'll, they'll round it back to say, well, when we're in, in this particular ceremony, we do this and it's because of, and it has something to do with natural phenomenon. So the more specific you get, it seems like the response you, you get is a lot different. At least in my right. experience, I know Shandine probably runs into that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, it was like I was saying, you know, you have to, you have to really become a, a master of what, of really the, the whole of what you're trying to ask. It's if you're going to piece it up into, uh, you know, subsections of whatever kind of information you want to get, you're going to get a, a varied response. But if you have already developed a good rounded sense of the the type of data that you need, then you're able to take in, I guess, um, unintended questions, unintended answers, and, and, you know, develop those into a question that would keep the respondent moving along in a conversation. But if you're just one tract and you want to know about, you know, how 
choke cherry wood is used for making arrows or whatever but you can't talk about you don't know nothing about hunting or you know nothing about the the the, the performances of how to take care of animal products in a certain way you then you're you're, you're really confining yourself to uh, getting stuck into a situation where the the respondents is going to turn off and and uh, you'll have a long, uncomfortable silence until you leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, I, I wasn't necessarily, I mean, not necessarily uncomfortable silences. Or I mean, like in the sense of like, just like letting people like think things through. Like sometimes you can see the wheels turning and like yeah, our white yeah. people instinct is like, oh, I got to like jump in because it's silence, you know? And so like learning right. how to just like no, yeah. turn that off, I guess is more what I was getting at. But yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Silence isn't bad. I think. Right. Just learning that right, right away that it's not bad. Right. Mm-hmm. I know because uh, you're going to kick us off of here pretty soon. <laughs> I think it's important for us to maybe talk a little bit too about how oral histories actually function the function of them within mm. tribal society, because I, yeah. I, that's, that's, that's always been where I've had my biggest problem in with what field ethnographers do. And, and looking at them, old oral histories, these guys were collecting things in a sliver of time, right? A snapshot in time. And, and um, there's a, this idea that I've kind of been stewing on over the years co- that I've called stratified narrative and, and how stories are constructed among tribal people. So, but Shandine knows a lot about this too, because we, we, man, we visit quite a bit about this topic of these stories and how they're interpreted and how they're looked at in, in the collection of stories among tribal people, like uh, traditional communities, you know, cause they'll, how stories are used and the purchasing of knowledge, which is a real thing. Like tribal people believe in, uh, reciprocity and spiritual reciprocity and the purchasing of knowledge. And so like right. you're actually giving physical gifts for, for an intangible idea and all of these things that you're never taught. They never ever talk about in the field of anthropology or it really any field I'm done. Oh, <laughs> we were practicing that uncomfortable silence getting used to it <laughs> yes <laughs> i was like did he no yeah out? you know what Aaron is saying is uh yeah yeah he took off no no i think um you know it's that's uh that's true um trying to situate the understanding of knowledge in today's world is, is so different. And even, you know, the elders of today in their sixties, seventies and eighties, you know, their, their hold remnants of that time that's gone past. And, you know, we, we have such vast access to knowledge these days that we maybe have lost or are losing the, the significance of it. And, you know, that might be guiding us to valuing it far differently. But, um, I think that is uh, not so true when, you know, especially when the the information or the knowledge is still in practice today, then in in that way, I think we can still appreciate and, and understand the the value of something like Aaron was saying, more like the like a trade, like a trade item, you know, but really, it, like I was saying before, it depends on 
the intent and the and the receiver and the listen or the and the giver's um ability to reconcile any differences that may be perceived in that kind of interaction but you know trade items help to facilitate that um uh, transmission of knowledge between people yeah so on that note i mean obviously first of all just you need to pay people for their time like if you're asking people for their experience <laughs> you know what i mean like all these people are always like wait we have yeah. to pay elders for their and it's like no yes like if you're asking for someone's phd level uh you know a uh, uh, doctorate of education level um experience in culture like you need to respect that authority and pay people but like you're saying too like there is something you know payment also kind of has a different feeling so like depending on who you're working with coming with some you know food or some um tobacco or sage or um you know sweet grass whatever you know, like that combination of the two can really, I guess, make a big difference. Like you're saying, like the, like, here's an actual yeah. tangible thing too. Right. Yeah. And then that requires a person in doing a little homework too. I think I've seen people given things in, in the, in the same instance, give that person giving that thing away <laughs> in the same instance or, you know, immediately after that, you know, cause it's something that, you know, they have already have plenty of, you know, Oh, okay. Another Pendleton. Well, I, I would yeah. maybe like, like a $200 check instead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you gotta be, uh, there's obviously cultural norms, but there's also like practical things too. And like my mom always says, like you, 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 no one's going to turn down food and gas money, you know? So like, that's always mm -hmm. a part. Yeah. We might give like traditional things, but at the same time too, it's like a lot of these families have, these elders have like grandkids and, and, and children living in the home. And there's like six, seven people, eight people, sometimes 12 to 15 people in a house. So it's like a, a $20 bill or a $50 bill, or, or if you can give more, man, it contributes something practical to that household. So um, and it, and you're right, Jessica, it's weird that these, uh, professionals and academics still ask the question, like, are, so are we expected to pay? And it's like, yeah, like, why is that even a thing? Like, why are you even asking? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Wait, they're not just going to volunteer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like... <laughs> Yeah. They might when have to get babysitters. This, they I, might I, have to like, you know what I mean? Like this is just, is, I mean, uh, for a lot of the elders we work with, this is literally their only income, you know? So it's like, yeah. 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 Especially now, now, nowadays it seems like it, it's doing, uh, it, unfortunately preservation is a hot topic in Indian countries. So collecting oral histories, you would think people, all, all of us are, actors in that and we should all be collecting stories and and doing our part in the collective of of pr the preservation of culture but it's just it, it, it's weird that it seems i had okay so i had some archaeologists say well what should we do you know for to to collect these stories and and i, I what i felt like saying was well, why is it our job as indian people to teach you what is something your mother should have taught you <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is just right. which is just which is just to be a human and be willing to visit and be patient and value conversation and and just chill, man. Like really, it just be cool, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
yeah, the emotional labor. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like, a, you know, the the thought if I if I think about it from the, the other side, like the, the person wanting the data and wondering why they have to pay. It's like bird watching, you know, you just have to have the right equipment <laughs> and you go watch some birds. You don't have to pay the birds nothing. But, you know, Indian people, <laughs> we're not birds. <laughs> well, yeah, well, but I mean, like, you would many, never think that, like, me as a contractor would be like, no, it's cool, I'm going to volunteer. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, but this seems like to be the mentality, though, you know, thinking of, of, of Indian people as this other thing, this non-human thing, that, that just seems like a, like an old relic of the past, you know? It's like collecting mm-hmm. rocks. You don't have to give the rock nothing because it's sitting around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if they really cared that much about the land, they would just do it for free. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, yeah, 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 right. And that's when you say, and so would you. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, yeah. Land yeah, manager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've never heard oh. an el- elder say billable hours. <laughs> billable hours. Ooh. That'll be I uh, I have to get an elder to say billable hours now. That's my goal. Yeah. <laughs> if we can teach these old folks to just sit down and say and say this is billable hours and then I think non-Indian yes. people would be like, "Oh yeah, they're speaking our language now, you know." <laughs> That's right. Oh, yes. All right. Well, do you two have any, you know, final thoughts, like any plugs that you want to throw in there before we close out? Well, Shandine, well, before Shandine does the IRC stuff, which we're both working on together, I don't want you guys just to think it's all about him. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, um, of course, remember my Instagram page, Indigenous Archaeology. You guys go jump on that, follow it. I think there's a YouTube page too, but we haven't put nothing on it yet for the Indigenous Archaeology, but hopefully soon. Well, I was going to say, you, you got some time. Yeah. You uh, <laughs> you could get it on there before this episode launches. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah, and then we've got a new we got a website that's in development. It's it's live right now for the Indigenous Research Center. It's just irc.skc.edu. So we'll be um, putting up more content on that page as we move forward. And we also have a YouTube, Twitter, and an Instagram. And I'm not sure what the um, the IRC just. Yeah, I think it's at irc.skc is the Twitter. And then uh, the Instagram is uh, ircskc. And the Facebook is skc Indigenous Research Center. And uh, I'm not sure what the YouTube is. I do not know that one. I don't 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 know it offhand. I don't think you can customize that one anyway. But if you just go to uh, YouTube... And you search up SKC IRC, you'll get to our YouTube page. We have a total of one video. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, a good yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that content will be developing in the future as well. Very cool. Yeah, hey, and if, if you're in the Chicago area, you have to go to the Field Museum and look at the Absaloga Women and Warriors exhibit that's there right now that I help contribute in collecting oral histories for that. So go check it out. Yeah, I did see something about that mm-hmm. once. 
We'll have to find that and put it in the show notes. All right. Well, you thank you mm-hmm. both. It was it was great to to get to chat more uh, nerd out, I guess, on oral histories and get into some of that nitty gritty that I don't normally get to yes. talk about on this show. And thank you for uh, all your service at Sailor's Cootney. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.